but I'm supposed to say something witty. <laughs> so hi. <laughs> Many years ago, I was taught a lesson. At the time, we were pastoring in Australia, and the church where we pastored had been, uh, the building had been a well-known theater. And so they had done a wonderful job in restoring and uh, making a difference on the outside. But the inside was still, it looked and felt like a theater. So they decided to renovate the total inside. That meant to say that for the next several months, we would not have a facility in which to meet, and I didn't have an office. And so we were meeting at a hall which was close to the, the University of Melbourne. And so I used to take opportunity of uh, going to one of the study halls of a university college on the university campus of Melbourne to, to study. I would go to a particular place, right in the corner, have my face towards the wall so I could not be distracted by what was taking place in the study hall. One morning I was doing my thing, and after a while I became aware that there was someone who had invaded my space. <laughs> so I stopped and I looked, and there was an elderly gentleman peering over my shoulder. So I looked at him, and uh, before I had the chance to say, what are you doing here, Baba? <clears throat> oh, sorry, mister. <laughs> he asked me the question, are you speed reading? Or are you scanning? I said, I'm speed reading. He said, how fast do you speed read? I said, it all depends. He said, depend upon what? I said, how quickly you can turn the page. He said, why did you say that? I said, because some pages are easier to turn than others. So he peered a little more and he saw the book I was reading and someone said, are you a religious guy? I said, all depends by what you mean by religious. <laughs> I said, if you're asking me if I'm a disciple, yes. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. He stopped for a moment and he said, may I give you a remits? I said, I'd be honored to receive a remets from you. I think you were surprised that I knew what remets was all about. It's one of the four means of studying in Jewish expression. So he said, uh, speed reading is an incredible tool for gaining information. He said, but if you want illumination, you have to engage in 
meditation. I went, oh. He said, speed reading will give you information, but meditation will give you illumination. Then he said, so I recommend, young man, that you start by sinking yourself into a paragraph. He said, when you've learned to sink yourself into a paragraph, then learn to sink yourself into a sentence. So when you've learned to sink yourself into a sentence, he said, you're going to need someone to help you sink yourself into a word. He said, if you ever master that, and I doubt it, you'll need a mentor that'll help you to sink into a letter. By now, I was looking at him, fascinated. His eyes became somewhat misty. Tears began to course down his cheeks. He had this faraway look in his eyes. Hello? <laughs> and he said, there's coming a time. He said, when the teacher of righteousness will come. And he will not only describe or define the black mark on the page but he will also define the little hieroglyphics on top of the letters. He said, but more than that, he will go beyond the black marks and he'll explain to us the meaning of the spaces between the letters. Now tears were really coursing down his cheeks. With that, he stood up and shuffled away. I turned my chair to watch the man as he made his exit through one of the exits of that study room. I saw the moderator of the study hall coming to where I was sitting and she said, what did that old fellow want? I said, he didn't want anything. I said, he came to give me a gift. She said, give you a gift? That old fellow? I said, do you know who he is? He said, yes. I said, because well, I don't. Who is he? He said, he used to be the chairperson of Jewish studies at the University of Melbourne. But he's long since retired, he's become very senile. He said, he's a nut. I looked at her and said, he is not a nut. He's a mystic. She looked at me and said, I think you're a nut too, and she turned <laughs> and walked away. 
This morning, I want to look inside a verse of scripture with you today. It's found that the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, or as the late Bob Terrell of blessed memory would say, little John, chapter three. The words go something like this. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable unto you and applicable for those to whom you are sending it. <coughs> for I ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <coughs> And saying it the way that I said it didn't mean a thing to us. So let's go into it a little bit. John opens up with the word, behold. The Greek word, I do. Simply means it comes from the root to look. But it literally means stop. Pay attention. Now we know the meaning of to stop and pay attention. Because if you drive a beach and you get to Western Center and you find that the traffic light is red, you're going to stop. Even though you're going to turn right, you're going to stop. And you better stop for a while. Otherwise, you'll get a letter in the mail with a pretty picture on a bill for $75. I know. I know. I want you to complain because you can make a, a picture mean anything and say anything. You need the prolonged pictures to see how long I stopped. But they don't send you that. They just said it's a pretty picture on the bill. John, speaking to his friend, says, stop. Pause a moment. I wish I could say that I had been obedient to the voice of the Lord. But there have been many, many times in my life in significant moments, in times which ought to have had an impact upon my life, I just came to a rolling stop and drove on. He didn't send me a ticket. But I did lose something in the process. Stop. But he goes on. I knew the term potatoes. Behold, what manner. Now that is a delightful term in the Greek text because it means pause and ponder. Think about this. Not just stop, but meditate upon this. The term is used just over 12 times in the New Testament. 
and it's used in a significant way. It is said of Mary, and according to the, the Coptic tradition, Mary had gone to the, the pool of the spring of Nazareth to draw water. And while at the spring of Nazareth drawing water, you know who turned up, Gabriel. And he said to her, Hail, blessed and beloved woman, the Lord is with you. And Luke goes on to say, and Mary was astonished and wondered at the meaning of the expression. That's the word. What manner of greeting this is. She knew it was something special. She knew it was different. And so she was thinking about it for a moment. But it's used also of the disciples to the end of a busy day. The Lord said, let's go to the other side. And so they got in the boat to go to the other side. What a pleasant way to spend an evening. Going about 12 to 15 miles across the lake. A beautiful setting. A wonderful atmosphere. And the Lord went to the back of the ship and took a nap. But what is common for that era, the valley, which is quite broad, narrows to a very, very, very small gorge at the horns of Hittim. And when there's a change of atmospheric pressure, the wind comes down that valley, and when it gets the horns of Hittim, it begins to spin. It becomes like a tornado, except it's horizontal, not vertical. And as it comes shooting out from the horns of Hittim, it hits the lake, and in a matter of minutes, that lake becomes a frenzy. Here were the folk on board ship on the boat. The sailors were too busy. The fishermen who was used to sailing that the vessel on that were too busy trying to keep the ship afloat. It was the landlubbers who were not used to fishing, who panicked. And they turned to Jesus and said, Don't you know that we are perishing? And Jesus stood up and said, be muzzled. And immediately, the wind went choo. Now you can almost explain that from the law of physics. But you can't explain the other. For not only did the wind cease, but the waves went choo. And there's so much energy in the movement of waves, it takes ages for them to become tranquil. But at the word of Jesus, the wind ceased and the waves went flat. And the landlubbers on board the boat, they looked and said, Oh my God. What manner, that's the word, what manner, of 
is this, that even the winds and the waves obey his voice. Because he said, It happened. But there's another word. For John doesn't simply say, behold, or stop, or pause and ponder. He tells us what to think about. He said, behold, what manner, what manner of what? What manner of love? No, I would have thought that John, who had been in the presence of the Lord and seen so very many wonderful things, he would have simply said, Behold what manner of power! Because he saw the Lord do some incredible things. Or he could have said, Behold what wisdom! Because never man spoke like this man. He could have used a variety of terms. He doesn't. He simply says, Behold, what manner of love. Agape. He's not talking about preference. I like apple pie. He's not talking about chemical interaction. I'm in love with my wife. He's talking about that which is commitment. He's speaking of a love which is different. A love which redeems. There is a story of a little boy who was brought up in, in Cornwall in England. His dad was a captain on a fishing trawler. And this little boy was fascinated with boats. He kept on saying to Dad, Daddy, you've got to build me a boat. Daddy, you've got to build me a boat. Daddy, you've got to build me a boat. And you know, little boys can be very, very... Uh, the word I'm going to say, I mustn't say in church. <clears throat> very insistent. And so his dad wrote to the little boy, they built a little boat. Very nice sail on it. And the dad said to the boy, now, don't forget, you've got to hang on to the string because if you're not careful, you could lose the boat. Ah, he said, Daddy, I will keep my hand on the string. I will not lose the boat. And so he, he takes the boat out to the little lake which flowed into a stream and down to the sea. And he's being very, very careful. He's holding on to the string. And then he sees a frog. Oh, look at that thing. And so he goes chasing after the frog. And then when he comes back, the boat had gotten in the middle of the lake. But not only had it gotten in the middle of the lake, it was caught in the stream. He had to go away from the lake, down. The little boy tried to retrieve it, but couldn't. He lost his boat. He went home and told his dad, I lost my boat. He told his dad what had happened. His dad said, yeah, the little boys do that. That's the kind of thing a little boy.
boy would do. He said, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'm sorry. He said, okay, he said, we can build another one later on. And so they went to the, the village together and to get some more wood to build another boat. And as they go by, there was a pawn shop. And in the window was the boat. He goes in and tells the owner, give me my boat back. The owner said, what do you mean your boat? It's my boat. I bought it. The guy said, yeah, but I made it. Give me my boat back. Man, some said, get lost, kid. He saw his dad. He said, daddy, my boat is in that shop. So the dad went into the shop, told the owner, taught for some markings on the boat. The guy looked here, the marks there. He said, it really is his boat. The guy said, look, I'll give it to you for what I paid for it. And so the dad gives the money, gives the boat to the boy. He walks outside. They go to grandma's house. I said, grandma, I got my boat twice. She said, what do you mean you got my boat twice? Well, she said, I made it. I lost it, and we bought it back again. It's the love that redeems. Because that's what happened to you and to me. He made us. But we got lost. So he bought us back. Behold, what manner of love. It's the love that redeems. Oh, but it's the love that restores. Jeremiah was told to go to the potter's house. At the potter's house, he watched the potter work. And he saw that the vessel that was in the hand of the potter was marred. So he made it again. That's my testimony. That's your testimony. He not only redeemed us, he's restoring us to regain the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'd lost. We were made in his likeness, but we got marred and scarred by sin, but he's restoring us. Hallelujah. Oh, don't clap. I have got time. It's the love that redeems. It's the love that restores. It's the love that rejuvenates. Last summer, I met with a, a former member of our fellowship. He'd been very active in our fellowship, but because uh, his work had transferred him out of town, he was no longer able to attend Bethesda. And so he was in town because of family members and he wanted to, to meet me and just to catch up on some things. And so, you know, I'm not good at chit-chat. You know, I'm, that, that's not part of my skill. In fact, as I get older, I'm not good at anything. <laughs> but we were sitting down talking and uh, so I asked him, well, how's 
Son number one doing? Oh, he's doing terrific. He's now got his own business and he's building up a, a sizable business. They're terrific. How's your daughter doing? She's doing well. She's just started a master's program in psychology and she's really committed. So I said, terrific. I said, what about Junior? <laughs> he said, well, he said, Des, he's changed. I said, oh. He said, yeah, he's just finished his first year in university and he's really determined to succeed. I said, that's great. He said, in fact, we're laughing at him at the moment. I said, why? He said, because when he came home from university, we recommend that he take the job. But we wanted him to become involved in manual labor because being a student, you know, it's a kind of a it's very sedentary kind of a activity. We wanted him to become active. And so he became working for as a laborer. He said, the first day he comes home, He's so ugly shot. He has a dinner. He takes a shower. And he goes to bed. He's in bed by 7 o'clock. He's never been in bed by 7 o'clock. Next day, same thing. He comes home. He's shot. But by now, he begins to become aware that some of the other kids are coming home from university and college and that they're going to start getting together. And he said to his mom, Mom, it doesn't matter who calls. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to bed. So he gets in bed, 7 o'clock. The phone rang at 7.20. Mom said to her husband, you better take it into him. He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, you better take it into him. So he goes to the bedroom, knocks on the door. Oh, a phone call for you. I told ma'am not to disturb me. I want to go to sleep. <clears throat> and he said, uh, it's, he gave the name of a person calling. He said, what's she doing in town? She's not supposed to be in town till after the weekend. She's supposed to be staying in California with friends. What's she doing in town? Dad said, I don't know what she's doing in town, but she's in town and she's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. Instead of the dreary voice, hello, who's calling? What do you want? Well, hello there. He looked at her. Good grief. Within seven minutes, he was properly dressed. His hair was slick. Walking out the door, far full of vim and vita, and somebody said, hey, I may be a little late coming home, Dad. Don't wait up for me. I said, what was it? He said, that's his girlfriend. A love that redeems. A love that restores. A love that reinvigorates. There's something about love that rises up deep within your being. 
and cause you to achieve and do things you would never think of doing before because the love of Christ compels us. Let me give you just one more idea on love. It redeems, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It restores, thank you, Jesus, I'm not what I used to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a love that revitalizes or re-energizes. But my least favorite expression is it's a love which redirects. I can understand the Apostle Paul simply saying, and you have he quickened because that's the renovation series. It's a part that that you were once in trespass and sins and walked off the course of this world, but now he began to redirect you. Because you see, friend, the things I used to do, I do them no more. The things which once had me in its grip were so attractive, it's now incidental. What manner of love? I've got to give you two more words. John says, Hopato, the Father. Now, because of John, he could have well used the term Theos, God, because he speaks of God in a context of love. For God so loved the world, he simply says that God is love. But he doesn't take, he takes it out from the austere and brings it into the personal. It's the Father. The Father hath bestowed upon us the Father. Behold what manner of love the Father. Now, if you were, if you'd be brought up in England, you would understand the story better. The royal protocol is to be very aloof and detached. In fact, when the queen and her consort goes overseas, and this was especially so years ago, when the, when the plane would arrive, they would roll up the, the exit ramp for her to get off, and then they have this beautiful red carpet for her to walk along. And so the queen would exit from the plane. And her husband would stand by the side, looking like a real stiff. <laughs> like a knight in, in shining armor. And there he'd walk stiffly by her side. And she'd walk up. And the first person she'd meet would be her eldest son, Charles. She'd offer Charles her gloved hand. And Charles would kiss her gloved hand and bow. Then she'd go from Charles to Andrew. Same protocol. Offer her gloved hand. Bow. 
Then went from Andrew to Anne, the girl. Same protocol. Offered her gloved hand. She curtsied. And that's the way it went. That was the royal protocol. Until Diana came along. And when Prince Charlie married Princess Diana, when they would go overseas and when they would come back, she so elegant a lady, so immaculately attired, she'd walk down the steps with Charles acting like his dad, like a real stiff. As soon as Diana put her feet on the ground, she would bend down, open her arms wide, and along the carpet would run two little boys, William and Harry, running down, jumping her arms, sometimes it'd be so severe it'd almost knock her over, and there she'd hold them, hug them, and kiss them, and hold them, hug them, and kiss them, and then she did the unthinkable with her husband still acting like a stiff. She'd hold him by the hands and walk along the carpet. And like little boys like to do, you know, arms. <laughs> what was I saying? You know, when you get old. You mean I was climbing a rope? <clears throat> the royal elite, they not only disdained it, they despised her for showing such affection. John says, Behold, the incredible love. That's being evidenced to us. It comes from a father with an open arms policy. You don't have to kiss a glove. You don't have to kiss a ring. You don't have to bow or curtsy. His arms are open wide. Come to me with a call that comes from the heart of the Lord. My time is gone. Let me close with one more word. Help me, Lord, help me. There is an obscure incident recorded in the second book of Samuel, chapter 5. Really a fascinating little incident. To be honest, it is a remarkable incident. Yet, in the 190 years that I've been in the ministry, <laughs> I have never heard anyone preach on this incident. It's a very, very well-known incident, I think. The text simply says, when David was crowned king. The Philistines 
came against him at the valley of Rephaim. Now, it doesn't mean anything to us, but it did for David. And so David went before the Lord and said, Lord, do you want me to take them on or no? And if you say that I'm to take them on, are you going to help me? And the Lord said, yeah. Now what David was not fully cognizant of was this. That war was going to be an unusual war. First of all, there was a psychological component. Because the Philistines had just defeated Israel a few months earlier. The defeat was so awful that King Saul took his life. The defeat was so bad that Prince Jonathan, who was a military genius, got killed. The battle went so sorely against Israel that the army was scattered. And so now the Philistine turned up. What we did to them then, we're going to do to you now. A psychological aspect. And other battle we're involved in has a psychological con component. But it also had a personal component. Because not only were the Philistines wanting to suppress Israel, they wanted to kill David. For there was an incident which rankled in the back of their minds for almost 15 years. David had killed Goliath. In fact, they'd made mention of this, the rulers had made mention of this, just a matter of a few months earlier. Don't let him come with us. He killed Goliath. And so the revenge factor was there. But there was another component. It had a spiritual component attached to it. The Philistines came with their little idols into battle. And David said, Lord, are you sure? <laughs> you tell after the Lord if he's sure. If, he's, if he says yes, it means yes. Because the words of the Lord are not yes and no. The words are yes. David goes, now, I would have thought that the historian would have given a great big record of the battle, etc., etc. He doesn't. He simply says, and David won. And that the Philistines went running home to Mama, and they were so panic-stricken, they threw aside everything and every weight which would hinder them, which meant they threw away their shields, and they threw away their little idols. And David called the place Baal Parzim. Huh? Baal Parzim. What does that mean? Well, the term Baal, or as we would say in Texas, Baal. Has two meanings. It either has a generic meaning, which simply means that it's the name for master or name for lord. 
but it has a specific meaning. It's the name of a particular idol, or the name of a particular god. And so David called the name of the place, Baal Perazim. Perazim simply means either to be knocked down or to be broken through. Look at the two aspects of what took place then in the context of what John is saying to you and saying to me. At that moment, David gave a new name to the place and he's also given a new name to God. God is the God that knocks the pretender down. For Jesus made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. But God is not only the one that knocks the pretender down. God is the one that breaks through. That when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against it and go boom. And so for the enemy, it's a breakdown. For the church's breakthrough. Obviously, that doesn't mean anything to you. But let me go on and close. At Calvary, God came to break down. He broke down the walls of, of partition. He broke down the power of the enemy. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews simply says it this way. That by his death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, which is the devil. God broke down. There is no chain. There is no barrier. There is nothing in life that can hold you down against the power of the Almighty. He is the God who breaks down. Don't clap. Calvary was not the end. It was but the beginning. Fifty days later, the obedient church, 120 members in together, were meeting in the upper room. In obedience to the voice of the master, who simply said, tarry until you be endued with power from on high. We know the story. The God who had broken down the pretender at Calvary was now the God that was going to break through the church at Pentecost. That not only would he reveal that he had the power, but he wanted to reveal that now we have the power to stand and to succeed for the glory of his name. Thus, we can also say, yes, Lord, you are Baal Parazim. You 
broken down. I'm free because of Jesus. But you give me the ability to break through. Whatever it is the enemy throws against me, I can honestly say, there really is victory in Jesus.